please come listen to our podcast. <laughs> Tell all your friends. Tweet about it. Post it on Facebook. Post it on your local messaging board. Welcome back to episode 11 of the Maroon Weekly. It is third week of spring quarter. As always, I'm Austin, and in the studio today are Miles and Quinn. What's up? Hey, everyone. This episode of the Maroon Weekly is going to be focused mostly on the shooting that happened last week, along with a follow-up with Samantha Eiler Triscoll, who we spoke to last quarter about the Bannon invitation. We're actually going to put up a second podcast this week, which is focused exclusively on the Boyer Zimmer free speech event. I sat down with Pete Grieve, one of the editors-in-chief of The Maroon, to talk about our coverage so far of the shooting that happened last week. I'm here in The Maroon's office today, and I'm joined by Pete Grieve, the editor of the paper. He's here to walk us through The Maroon's reporting so far of the shooting that happened last Tuesday on April 3rd. So, Pete, the shooting actually happened on Tuesday night. How did you end up hearing about that, and how did you get all the details lined up so quickly after the event? I have to give credit to uh, my colleague, Lee Harris, who's a news editor at The Maroon. She uh, was sent a video that's mostly just darkness, so it's, it's, it's audio more than anything. But it's of a gunshot, and you know, from that video, we knew the approximate location. We knew there was a shooting, and that was about it. So we didn't know at that point who had fired the shot. If it was police or someone else, we didn't know a student was shot. But you know, a shooting close to campus—it's it's something the Marines usually going to look into. So, you know, from there we uh, took a look at Twitter. Didn't see much on, you know, there's a bunch of reporters who tweet things out from police scanners, and uh, we didn't immediately see anything. We went to the scene. We sent an email to the Chicago Police Department's Office of News Affairs, and they're they're very responsive. So you get a, you get a quick email back from them, and they said uh, UCPD officer involved shooting, and they gave the location, which is uh, the alley between between Woodlaw and Kimbark um, on the 5300 block, so just south of 53rd Street. And they said it was an officer involved shooting. They didn't even clarify if an officer had been shot or if, if an officer fired the shot. So. We knew that. When I, when, I, when I went to the scene, police had set up tape. This was probably around midnight. And I, I, I approached the tape because usually, you know, in a, a situation like this, you can sort of walk up to where they have the barricade. But pretty me- immediately once I got there, uh, you know, I was told I needed to leave. So that gave me the impression that, you know, they were sort of worried about some sort of active situation. Um, the, I think I was talking to an officer, and he said, you know, usually you can go right up to the tape, but um, there was some sort of higher up who was on the scene, I don't, I, I don't know her exact title, maybe like a district commander or something like that, um, and she'd shouted like, get him the fuck out of there. Um, so uh, uh, this officer like pushed me back and, and uh, you know, pushed me into the block, so there wasn't really anything I could see. But soon thereafter, we got an email from the university's news office, and they were just saying at this time, you know, this was 1 a.m., I think, they said, we have no information, still trying to figure it out. Around 3 a.m., they confirmed that UCPD officers, or UCPD officer fired a shot at a male. Didn't say it was a student at that point, but we already had a story up. So we had a story up around 2 a.m. that there was an officer involved shooting. And once that story published, I got a direct message on Twitter from someone who was close friends of the victim. And he said, you know, it was a student and called him up. Um, we talked, got some information. At that point, we knew, in, in the words of the source, that it was a, a manic episode. Suggesting that it was sort of a mental health, you know, related incident, he said, you know, there, um, the student was carrying a metal bar when he was shot, breaking windows, and then obviously body body cam video was released. Uh, I guess the next day. So, so in that, did the university publish that themselves, or did they first send it to the Maroon? The body cam. Yeah. They sent it. Well, I got an email. It, there was an email to me and to Lee Harris, the other reporter who wrote the story. But my understanding is they sent it to sort of all sorts of media outlets. I don't have a full list, but okay. you know, within minutes, I, we weren't the first to get the video up because we're not as fast with video, but mm-hmm. within a half hour we had it up and probably other outlets had it up even a few minutes before us. Do you know why the university didn't publish it on their own? They sent it to the media first? No, I, I don't know why. We did know that was going to happen. They, they had said, I guess it was the email from Zimmer to campus, he said that they'd be releasing video to media, so that's what we were expecting. Mm-hmm. And I think it came pretty, pretty late in the evening, around like 8 p.m. And then in the days following that first report, we've 
since we've received more and more information, so like from the victim's mother, I believe we we've spoken to, and various people who who were friends or associates of the victim, did they just get in contact with you, or did you have to go and seek those people out? Yes, I mean, so we, we we've learned information through like a variety of ways, but for the mother interview, I was given her number um, from a friend who was in contact. So I called up the mother, and she was at the hospital, and didn't have a lot of time to talk because she had to, I guess, meet with various officials and psychiatrists and stuff. So she's very busy, but you know, she took the time to uh, sort of explain what she knew at that point. She said, "There's a history of bipolar disorder in their family, and from her experience, it, it can sort of start to manifest around this age. So she's never seen any signs in her son, Charles Thomas." But, you know, she said she's sort of been paying close attention because, you know, around this time, it can start to manifest. And she said he'd been very busy working on his thesis. He had deadlines coming up. So she suspected that sort of stress around that contributed to the episode. Those are sort of the main points. She did question whether the, the officers could have restrained him in some other way without firing a bullet. She said she pointed out that one of the officers said he was, quote, mental. In the, in the body cam video, though she, you know, she said one, she, she wonders if he's mental, why, why did they have to fire the shot? She's very calm on the phone, it sounded like to me, but obviously this was early on. She, at that point, she had very limited access um, to her son because he was in police custody, so um, they weren't letting any friends visit and family had limited access. Are there sort of next steps for this story or are we mostly just waiting for, for Thomas to be released from the, from the hospital? Yeah, I, I don't have the latest condition update, unfortunately. We did know that he was in ICU last week uh, at a demonstration. One of his friends said that he had a collapsed lung and I believe a, a broken or fractured shoulder. So it, it, it does sound from all accounts that he's expected to recover, but I, I don't think we, there's been any information in the past day or so about condition. So we'll wait to see there. The Tribune reported from Bond Court that a judge set Bond at $15,000 and with a stipulation of electronic home monitoring. Uh, he's facing multiple felony charges. The other, you know, the other thing I, I'm paying attention to is what happens with the school. You know, if, if there's felony charges, you might imagine that there could be some sort of disciplinary action. So what does the university do? Do they bring a case against him? Does that lead to suspension? Does it lead to expulsion? We have no idea at this point, and the university's not saying. If people have information about this that they want to share, should they email you or contact the Maroon in some way? Yeah, you can reach out to the Maroon. News at chicagomaroon.com is our email. We're always happy to talk to anyone who has information, and we also have an anonymous tip line. I guess the, the other thing that you know I think is important to stress here is that we're talking about a human being, a student, Charles Thomas, fourth year, you know, and I, I think a lot of his friends are understandably frustrated that the sort of human side of him is some maybe lacking or missing in, in some of the media coverage. It's been sort of amazing to see students organize on social media, releasing photos to try to sort of humanize him, reshape the narrative. You know, there, there's video of him laughing. Apparently he had sort of just this amazing, he has this sort of amazing laugh that everyone remembers. By all accounts, so far, you know, he's a great guy, very kind, very gentle, who dealing with some mental health issues and, you know, didn't get the help he needed from the university. He was referred off campus by mental health services. So, you know, he had, he had one bad night, according to his friends, and, uh, you know, they're all hoping that he can, he can move on from this. Obviously, you know, it's a long road ahead with sort of the stigma of mental health issues, so... You know, I, I think it's just important to keep in mind that this is a student, someone in our community, you know, as, as we, um, you know, think about whether the, the shooting was justified and, you know, as, as, as those debates happen online, so. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Pete Greaves sat down with Olivia DeKaiser to chat about her friend and coworker, Charles Thomas. Hey, can you uh, introduce yourself? All right, so I'm Olivia DeKaiser. I'm a fourth year at the university, and I've been working with Charles um, at the Oriental Institute Museum for the past three years. What do you What do you do at the OI, and what does he do? So we're both um, gallery attendants, which basically means that 
we, you know, go in the galleries and we answer visitor questions and make sure nobody touches anything. Um, it's a pretty low-key job, and then outside of that, we'll sometimes do, like, nighttime security, so you stay in the museum overnight. And are you, are you guys friends outside of a professional relationship? Yeah, we, um, we hang out sometimes after work, and we've had uh, classes together before, um, and, you know, we've, we've hung out from time to time as well. What, how would you um, sort of describe Charles as a person? Charles is, he's one of the most laid-back people I think I've ever met just always just very friendly, very chill, um, but always just, he always wants to talk to you and always wants to, you know, to be your friend. And so he's, he's just such a great presence to have around. A lot of people have like said on Twitter, like they remember, or not remember, I mean, they just like talk about his, his laugh and his incredible laugh. He has the best laugh. And I think um, I'd always want to tell stories to him that would make him laugh because it's just the most like rolling, like warm laughter. And he, as he talks to you, you know, he'll tell you these like really hilarious long-winded tales and he'll just laugh and laugh. And it's, the, it's, it's just the, the best thing about him, I think. Um, do you have a sense of like what some of his interests are? So he's very passionate about history, especially like Japanese history. So we've taken some classes in the Japanese, about Japanese history together. Um, and he loves archeology. span he was always talking about, you know, he wanted to go out in the desert somewhere and go on a dig or do things like that. And he just loves, you know, he just loves doing all sorts of, he goes going on adventures with his friends and being outside and being with people and just looking for the next adventure always. And when did you, when and how did you find out that he'd been shot? So I found out on Wednesday actually when I saw the police footage um, that was updated in the Maroon, and it was kind of a coincidence of timing that I was, you know, online on Facebook at that time. I was in the reg doing some work, and I thought I'd take a study break, and I saw the updates on the article, and I think a lot of people who watched it initially were very curious as to what actually happened, um, and so I wanted to check it out for myself, and as soon as you see him on camera is when I knew that it was him. But before then, I never would have guessed that this tragedy really was so close to home for me. And I made myself watch it over and over again to make sure that it wasn't him, like trying to find things like, this can't be, this can't be my friend here. But he's so distinct in the way that as a person, that I think it was just like once I, I knew once I saw it. I know people who another uh, another coworker of ours she said that when she heard the the video like in his, his voice she could tell and so I think a lot of his really close friends like knew from then on um, that that was before his name was released before, he'd been, identified. before he'd been yeah. identified yeah. and those those first that first like you know 24 12 hours that before that was um public information that was really rough on a lot of us because we were trying to reach out to people who would know or trying to confirm things and trying to figure out what had happened and you know we were all we were all really really worried so and since then I mean I've noticed that uh, you and some of his other friends have um, on social media been sharing photos of of Charles and videos of his laugh, um, uh, putting some pressure on media to, you know, go beyond just the body camera footage to um, try to think about, you know, this is actually a student who was shot, who, you know, um, has friends, who yeah. is a real person. Can you talk a little bit about like what it was like to sort of decide that, you know, you it, it would make sense to to sort of, you know, even though it, it's a, it's a it's a tough situation and you know it might be nice if. His name was never out there in the first place to actually try to fight that narrative and, and release some info. And I think that, especially in like recent times, it's really important to work on humanizing the people that are involved in similar such situations that all the world was seeing of my friend, someone that I've known, that I care about very much, and that I've known very, very well for the past couple years, 
is this these really awful images of from the like the police cam videos and things like that and it was making me really 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 mad that certain newspapers were sensationalizing it and ca trying to use it to like paint this picture of him like you know this is he was always like this or this is a, an example of a student that was very unstable or very violent and i'm like this is not the case and i I know that if, if this happened to any of Charles's friends, he'd be up there vouching for them. He cares very deeply about all of his friends, and I knew that I really needed to, to say something about that. And I saw other people were sharing photos, and I was like, I have some. Like, I've, I've taken some goofy photos with him. These, like, this is the Charles that people need to see, not, not these other images, not this media narrative, not you know, the way that people think that they might they might know what's happening they don't they don't know who he is but it's our duty to to talk about it to talk about Charles as a person what was what was it like when you saw that he'd been charged with felonies and you know I mean it seemed like that for some of his friends was sort of and it felt like you know and not only had the university failed him when they shot him not only had they failed him um, when uh, you know, he went to mental health services and was referred off campus. But then, again, like for some of his friends, they've said sort of it seems like he's being punished, criminalized um, for what was what seems to be by all accounts a mental health episode. Um, I I'm not happy at all with the police charges and the things that are against him. I think that there's the situation is so complex that. It, it, it upsets me greatly that this is, you know, a mark on him. Um, but I don't, I guess I, I, I guess, I guess I'm just, I'm just mad about all of that. And I don't really have too many, too many more things to say about like the felonies in and of themselves. Sure. Um, you know, if, if Charles was listening to this, what would, you know, what would you say to him? I think that he should know that we're all we're all here to support him a hundred percent like he's known this forever like he knows that he can trust his friends and everything and I trust him so much to even work and outside of work and everything um, and I I hope that he doesn't feel isolated like this I want him to know that we care very much about him and that the support that I've seen from his other friends not just people at work and not just you know the, the vocal few, but it, there's there's so many people that are really, really rooting for him and really hope for the best for everything to happen the way that they need to. Thank you, Olivia. One of our hosts, Quinn Kane, got the chance to talk to Guy Emerson Mount, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the university. He's teaching a course this quarter of which Charles Thomas is a member. In light of this week's shooting, I'm talking with UChicago History postdoctoral fellow and co-founder of the Reparations at UChicago Working Group, Guy Emerson Mount. Thank you for talking with me. Hi, thanks for having me. So first off, before we start, I wanted to ask if you've been in contact with Charles, and if so, how's he doing? Yeah, I haven't, and this is, of course, one of the, the problems, is that um, right now his family's being allowed into the hospital where he's at, but friends, teachers, other support, besides you know, psychology and medical kind of personnel, um, are not able to give him any kind of help or, or emotional or you know, mental support at this point. I know the Maroon reported that at first his mother had sort of limited access to him um, in the hospital. Does, she, does his family now at least have have access? Yeah, the degree to which that that is the case, I'm not sure. I mean, if there's any kind of sign of, of the kind of place where he is in right now and the kind of things that he's contending with, the reports that I've seen have also said he's still handcuffed to the bed. Really? Yeah. Well, before we start talking about the shooting, I want to get a sense of what you do. So you study in the university's Department of History, right? Right. So I did uh, all my PhD study here at the University of Chicago. And then this last term, um, I transitioned over to a postdoctoral fellow. So I teach uh, uh, four classes over the course of this year. So I did two in the fall and then I'm going to be, uh, or sorry, two in the winter and then now two in the spring. And I had a research leave to be able to work in the, in the fall doing, uh, doing research on my book manuscript. And what's your area of history that you specialize in? 
Sure. So I work on American, African-American history, and specifically I look at the intersection of slavery, emancipation, and empire. So I'm very interested in kind of the connections between empire at home and empire abroad, between questions of black, black belonging, black citizenship, uh, as well as the relationship between African-Americans traveling abroad and American empire as it is expanding abroad. And so... As I understand, Charles is currently in one of your classes. Is that right? Yes. So he's in my global history of hip-hop class, which is really taking that that theme of black internationalism and uh, contending with uh, kind of the wider uh, development of American capitalism in our our modern era through the the cultural medium and the cultural production of hip-hop. So it's kind of an exploratory class in a lot of ways. And I I thought it was was a real need in terms of the curriculum at the University of Chicago. We don't have a lot of space uh, for students to be able to talk about what's effectively the one of the most important cultural touchstones of their their lives. In some ways, it was a it was an offering of love to the students to give them something that they were really interested in, and that I think also has some very deep ways in which you can connect some of the struggles that we're we're, we're dealing with in our world today. So, for example, the class Thursday that I taught that Charles was supposed to be in, we were uh, talking about police brutality through NWA, and uh, it's still in some ways surreal the fact that that was uh, the police brutality being talked about at the NWA in the 1980s, and it was being taught in a class by a student who was just shot by the police. It's uh, it's surreal in a lot of ways. Yeah, you, so does that class meet Tuesday, Thursday? That's a Tuesday, Thursday class, yes. And so you saw Charles on Tuesday? On uh, the... He actually wasn't in class on Tuesday. I'm not sure okay. where he, he, he was at. He was yeah, shot that evening. So how did you address this in your class on Thursday? Yeah, so we um, just, I, I try to just provide a space where students could, could talk it through, could uh, think about it, not necessarily in uh, in an intellectual capacity, but some of us try to do, you know, as much theorizing our way out of it as we as we could. But one of the things that that class um, and my colonizations class that I've really been trying to get students to think about are affective ways of knowing that are not always recognized um, at a place like the University of Chicago, where emotions, feelings, intuition, uh, even like spiritual insights, things that uh, everyday people have but are told that are they're kind of invalid, right? They, they don't really matter if you can't quantify it, if you can't rationalize it, and if you can't think of it in a, in a way that leads to something that fits within a Western kind of epistemology. So it's it's something that is dismissed if it comes from, you know, a young black youth with no education, uh, college dropout, drug dealer. You say these things and feel these things, that there's just something not right with the way policing has happened, and it's kind of dismissed outright. And that's one of the things that both of my courses, this, this term specifically, is really pushing hard back against, is really trying to, in some ways, decolonize the space of the University of Chicago itself. Yeah. How do you feel like your students have responded to those sorts of discussions, especially since the shooting? Um, well, since the shooting, it's a whole nother story. Before yeah. that, um, everyone was, was really just happy to have that space and that opportunity to think about you know, something uh, besides the, the besides the channel through which we're kind of driven into. I mean, these are students who have feelings. And I mean, this is another thing when it comes to mental health, right? When we don't allow our students a space to be able to express feelings and emotion as a real way of, of knowing and reacting to, you know, intellectual material, uh, I think it's a problem where, you know, you have to be this strong, intellectual, diehard, rational, materialist in class all of your emotions and things that you think, feel, and experience are just discounted and invalidated, and that, that's not healthy. And so I think in some ways that, that is a manifestation also of, of what happened. I mean, you have students that, you know, the idea of being stressed out is almost like a badge of honor. The idea of being overworked, I think, in this very, uh, I think, really gendered way is seen as you're, you know, kind of tough and strong because you can, you know, work on two hours of sleep and you can read thousands of pages a week. and I'm not sure that's the healthiest way to do this. Again, if nothing else comes out of this, at least there's a conversation that's brewing about the intersection here of mental health, uh, workload, academic excellence, and the kind of campus culture and climate as a whole. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, to hear you say, just because, you know, I feel like as a student, I hear other students talk about that, but I wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, professors to pick up on that or, or... You know, I, sometimes there feels like there's a disconnect between professors and students, but what you're saying is really kind of reassuring to hear that, you know, professors want to make this a, a more healthy place mentally and 
and sort of work together with students. Yeah, I hope, and I think there are more professors like me out there than you know would maybe have maybe stood up thus far and said as such. But um, yeah, hopefully that's a turning point. But one of the other divides that I think again we we have to talk about kind of up front is this supposed divide between you know the community, however that's uh, you know abstracted and and kind of you know pigeonholed, and uh, the campus, right? And the idea that the University of Chicago sits in the middle of the South Side of Chicago, a predominantly historically African American community with a rich tradition a rich culture um, that has really undergone um, an just unprecedented transformation in terms of the amount of destruction and despair that, you know, deindustrialization and neoliberal capitalism have, have pushed upon it. And um, the policing that's arisen in the last, um, you know, 30 years, that boundary is quite literally policed by police. Um, I think it's, a, it's another big, big problem that, again, I hope this kind of uh, points out uh, because ostensibly the, the way that the police are conceptualized at the University of Chicago and the way that students have told me they are quite literally sold to students during admissions that when um, they're told by the administration, you know, we have this big, bad, tough police force that's well-funded and super well-trained and they're going to protect you, again, ostensibly from this big, bad, you know, scary African-American community that will otherwise harm and hurt you. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about recently, I just did a report on some graduate student housing buildings around campus where I walked around to a bunch of these buildings with another podcaster, and we noticed that they all seemed very safe because they all had blue light, you know, blue light posts right at the entrance of every building. And then we were talking a couple days ago and kind of thought, one, I think what you're saying, you know, that kind of establishes this sort of boundary between you know, university and community. But also, we were thinking, especially since the shooting, there might be some people from UChicago who may not feel any safer by hitting that button, calling the UCPD. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's 100% correct. And if you talk to, you know, black members on, on the south side, black members of the community on the south side of Chicago, they'll tell you that those things are horribly insulting, right? That they know who's who's designed to push, who who's expected to push those buttons and who's expected uh, to be on the other side of what happens when that button gets pushed. It's, uh, it's again, a, a part of a bigger systemic problem that relates to how we conceptualize what a university should be doing, what its mission is. Um, and for me personally, the idea that the University of Chicago was founded by a slaveholder, it's, it's a question. I mean, it's a problem. And Charles, unfortunately, was the... Yeah, was, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to say victim. I mean, I really want to say he was the object in some ways of these, these larger, um, these larger forces that um, he didn't create. And furthermore, he didn't have a say in. And I think that's, that's a bigger structural problem that has to change. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that a little bit, especially in, in respect to how you've been organizing since the since the shooting, you've been at and helped organize some of the demonstrations since the shooting. Yeah, I've I've been part of yeah various kind of organizations and groups and yeah that have been trying to to get this going and been invited to speak at others and yeah it's uh, some in in some case I mean this is one of the the healthy things the things that if I'm uh, you know looking at the University of Chicago from the outside and looking for some kind of uh, uh, I don't know, promise or possibility. Um, it's that there were already um, protests planned um, before Charles got shot. So there were two major ones already planned. One was the Graduate Students United um, protest that was already set and ready to go for its own purposes. And the other was done by R3, uh, which is Resist, Reimagine, Rebuild, uh, which is uh, led by Barbara Ransby and a bunch of uh, people of color-led organizations on the south side of Chicago for all the other people of color who were shot by police during this period, right? And so having a vibrant protest culture on campus um, is absolutely vital to something like this. One of those protests ended up being on the same day as the discussion between President Zimmer and Dean Boyer right. discussing free expression on campus. Were you, were you at that protest? Yes, so I spoke at that protest and was among the protesters um, at that protests. We were, again, outside the place where, interestingly, we wanted to get in to talk about free speech, but we were not free to be able to go into an event to talk about free speech. And as many of the activists have pointed out, the entire discussion on quote-unquote free speech 
is really not is really a false issue. It's really not about free speech. It really is about silencing dissent. If you want kind of proof of that, um, you know, one of the things that this is, has sparked is this idea of Steve Bannon coming to campus, which none of us that are working on that question are saying that the administration should stop Steve Bannon from speaking, right? But what we are saying is that there's a double standard, and the double standard is during that very protest when we were protesting Steve Bannon's coming, there were community members that we had invited from campus, members of Black Lives Matter that I personally had invited to come to campus. And uh, the second those protesters who, again, were invited to speak at the University of Chicago. So just as Steve Bannon was invited to speak at the University of Chicago, when I invited the speaker from Black Lives Matter to come and speak, we were outside of the booth school. We took one step onto university property. And immediately, my invited guest to the University of Chicago was told by the University of Chicago police, you got to get on the sidewalk. You cannot touch. You cannot step foot on the University of Chicago's campus. That's not free speech, and that a, is a clear indication that it shouldn't really even be framed as a question of free speech. It, it's a foil for a much larger set of political struggles. Now, in a speech that you gave on Friday, you commented on how President Zimmer described the shooting as, quote, protocol. And you said, quote, the problem here isn't whether the officer followed protocol. The problem is the protocol itself. In what ways do you feel like the police protocol failed Charles? So I think here we have to really take a, a, a much bigger step back. I mean, the protocol that we have is that the only way that currently most of us are able to conceptualize justice is whether or not um, the protocol of, in this case, uh, the state um, can answer a couple of questions, which is, one, what law was broken, who broke that law, and what's the appropriate punishment for that law? Those are the three basic questions that really animate our punitive justice system. And so if you apply them in this case, you have people online, and this is very, just so people will know, this is very harming to, to black and brown students and people who care about Charles to hear this. But you have people that are now openly saying, this is, this is clearly what you deserve when you have a pipe in your hand and you walk towards a police officer. And in one sense, you could say, well, that's wrong. But the only way that's wrong is if the protocol itself is wrong. According to the protocol, this is what's bizarre here is that's actually justice. And Zimmer was not wrong about when he said that that's the protocol. So to me, that's where the, I mean the problem is the protocol itself. The problem are those initial questions. I, I think that what we need to do is think of a new protocol. And that new protocol is based on restorative justice and reparative justice, which asks a, a different set of questions. The reparative justice model would ask who has been harmed and what are their needs and whose responsibility is it to meet those needs? If you apply those questions, you get a whole different set. Of, and this is where everyday people actually are. So people that look at what happened and say, there's no way that's justice. That can't be the way that we as a society want to deal with a mental health emergency. I mean, it was a mental health thing. It's nobody's fault. It's, it's less about blaming, right? It's not about blame. It's about, well, who's, who's hurting here? Um, and I, we really need to reconceptualize our very basic understandings of what justice is, number one, what it could be, number two, and then what it should be, number three. And I, if there's any place where those questions can be asked, I would hope it would be at the University of Chicago. Those are the kinds of big reconceptualizing questions that we're taught to think about. You made a distinction, a very careful distinction earlier to call Charles the object of this scenario and not the victim. Why do you make that choice so carefully? So I, I think part of what came out of the discussion of students, they, they all, they, several of them used this idea of dehumanization and the idea that someone with a mental health concern, someone, a person of color on the south side of Chicago, is and by necessity is, is dehumanized, meaning objectified, turned into an object by which the, uh, the, the state forces, or in this case, the you know, University of Chicago's pseudo-state forces, um, apply this, again, punitive justice standard to those, those objects. And one of the students, this is one of the, again, real benefits of diversity in the classroom, right? I had students uh, in several of my classes, actually, from Singapore. And they, one of them, actually several of them, had been trained in the, in the Army. And this was one of the requirements in Singapore that you have to go to the Army. And one of the students who had been through this training said that one of the things that has to happen when you, when you are trained, and he hadn't thought about it until he, he saw this happen, he says, you're actually trained on, you know, abstractions, right? And you're trained to shoot at objects, and you're trained to then start to think of the people in front of you who you are, you know, supposed to be shooting. 
as, as an object. And that's one of the things you have to do as a, in, in your training in order to make sure that what you do is simply, again, protocol. Simply you do, you pull it out and you, you shoot when you're supposed to shoot. And you can't do that if you actually stop and think and humanize the individual in front of you. And this is why the, the phrase, which we talked about also in class, you know, he's a mental, quote unquote, which is a very objectifying, dehuman, like a mental, right? right? Not a human being who is experiencing a mental health emergency. Obviously, that's a mouthful, but the discourse itself is part of a deeper understanding of how Charles was being perceived by that officer. He was being perceived as a category, as an abstract object, an abstract category of a mental. And we know what our training tells us to do with mentals, right, as a category. You come to a different conception of justice when you see people as human beings rather than as a protocol or as a set of, of bureaucratic procedures that you have to, you know, obey and you have to, to function in that in that way. So I, I if I was there, right, if I'd been the person that was called first, I mean, as his, as his, his teacher, I gladly, if you had to tell me, look, would you rather have Charles shot in the shoulder to solve this problem, or would you rather take a pipe to the head to solve this problem? Looking at Charles in that moment and seeing the suffering he was already undergoing, where's the bat, right? Show me the bat and let's let's solve this that way. I'm, I will gladly have, and I think his parents would feel the same way. I think his friends would still see the same way. And so the question is, why is it that we have people who are out in the community with guns who aren't thinking that same way about every person they're interacting with? Where do you go from here? What are what are you planning to do in regards to the sort of messaging and, and demonstrating in the the days to come? Yeah, I mean, I think it's continue to organize, it's continue to educate, it's continue to get more and more people involved. It's yeah, continuing to try to build bridges. I think that's one of the beautiful things that has come out of this is you have, you know, bridges being built between organized labor, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, people who are working on police brutality, now everyday students, uh, now people who have been working on mental health, right, as a concern. So Charles's shooting has in many ways been a then in this way, a beautiful thing that's brought a whole bunch of people together who either care about him personally or care about the issues that went into his being harmed. And so I think it's continued to organize. I think it's continued to have people come together. And in my case, I think it's getting people together to think about reparative justice and think about what reparations would look like for Charles in this particular case. So Charles and his family, what a reparative justice process would look like in this case. So bringing Charles together with um, you know, the, the officer who shot him, that means bringing together the family members who were involved. It means bringing together community members. It means bringing together Charles with the people whose windows he smashed right? Bringing all those parties together to think those questions through is incredibly productive and is a much better way to do it than, um, you know, going through the court system in the way that um, it's currently being, you know, thought about. And I hope it doesn't go down that route. Again, I hope all the charges are dropped. But I think if all the charges are dropped, that doesn't mean that the question is over. That means that a reparative justice process really in many ways has only begun. That to me is, is the end game. And that to me is what I'm hoping I can, I can contribute to. Well, Guy Emerson Mount, thank you so much for speaking with me. I saw, I think, on your Twitter that you're going to be teaching at Auburn next year. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. No, that's uh, it's it's an amazing place, and um, yeah, I'm absolutely just elated to be there. And it's uh, yeah, a fantastic opportunity and a whole a whole different um, set of challenges. But it's every time I go down south, it's amazing uh, the the. I think counterpoint of what's happening in the South versus what's happening in some of these urban cities in the North. And it's amazing that people there are, are on a completely different wavelength when it comes to uh, both race relations, as well as this question of how to contend with the history of slavery. I mean, we have the administration at the university of Chicago saying, Oh yeah, we have no ties to slavery, right? Just complete denial, which is a very just immature way to think about this. Whereas you have the administration of Auburn saying, yeah, you know, we have this history. We really want to do what we can to make it better. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what you would, you would think, right? It's, you think these Northern, you know, cities, these progressive so-called cities would, uh, you know, be, uh, you know, in the forefront of this, but down south, they, they've, they've got a different formula, and the formula is, frankly, something that I think Chicago and, and New York and other cities could really could really benefit from. So I'm excited to be in that different kind of cultural context to be able to work through these same questions in a way that I think there's, there's a lot more traction down there than uh, there is on pier, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you.
Members of the university community came together twice this week to protest the shooting of Charles Thomas by the University of Chicago Police Department. The first of these began as a protest organized by Graduate Students United to demand that the university negotiate with the union. Faculty Forward, the organization representing non-tenure-track faculty, came to an agreement with the university last month, but GSU, which withdrew its case from before the NLRB in February, has yet to negotiate with the university. The union had organized this protest outside of a conversation on freedom of expression with President Zimmer and Dean Boyer. We did our best to exercise our right to free speech and demand a bargaining session. Of the shooting, though, this protest also included calls for policing reform. Guy Emerson Mount also spoke at this protest. What happened to my students was, quote, protocol. When I first heard that, I thought it wasn't right. I thought it couldn't be that that's the protocol at the University of Chicago. But then I thought about it. And I thought about the history. That is the protocol. Inside the free expression event, chants from the protest were clearly audible. Because the nature of democracy is uh, the uh, contention of ideas. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm well satisfied that there are things going on around the country in that regard. Students organized another protest, which culminated outside of Levi Hall, the building which houses President Zimmer's office. Some of Thomas's peers spoke at that protest. On Tuesday night, our friend, classmate, neighbor, and colleague, and my friend, Charles Thomas, was shot by an officer from the University of Chicago Police Department. He suffered a broken shoulder blade and a collapsed lung. Charles was taken to the Northwestern Memorial Hospital, where as of last night, he remained chained to this hospital bed and under guard by a private University of Chicago police officer with extremely limited access to his family and no access at all for his friends. There is a history of bipolar depression that runs in Charles's family, and the symptoms of the disease are known to manifest first between the ages of 18 to 24, even when an individual has shown no prior signs. These are medical facts. Woo! Anyone, student or faculty on this campus will tell you about the intense amount of emotional stress put on individuals to succeed. Charles was no stranger to this feeling. And with pressures mounting at the end of his undergraduate career, he did what he could to get himself help by visiting student counseling services at the end of winter quarter. Rather than being provided with a regular counselor on campus, SES referred him off campus. This is the context we need in order to understand the events of Tuesday night. Footage released by the UCPD clearly shows an individual in the midst of a mental health crisis, as verbally acknowledged by an officer on camera. With this in mind, we are shocked to have learned that serious criminal charges have been filed against Charles, adding further and intensive distress to an individual who needs our care, not our criminalization. Guy Emerson Mount, who was at the GSU protest, also spoke at this event. History. And this quarter I'm teaching a course on the global history of hip-hop. Last Tuesday, Charles was in that class on hip-hop at the University of Chicago. This Tuesday, he was not in class. This Tuesday, he was shot by the campus police force of the University of Chicago during a mental health emergency. Yesterday, his classmates shed tears for him. They shed tears of pain. They shed tears of compassion. They shed tears of love. Some was a direct love for Charles. 
and some as a direct love for humanity and a love for the sanctity of human life. They also shed tears of fear, wondering if they might be next, if they would be punished for experiencing a mental health emergency. This is a time for everyone on campus to unite and make sure that Charles shooting becomes an awakening to this campus. The shooting of Charles Thomas has raised several concerns within the university community relating to UCPD procedures, mental health services on campus, and racial profiling within the UCPD. Thank you to the Maroons video team for contributing audio to this recording and to Matthew Foldy for the audio from within the Freedom of Expression event. Marketplace has launched. What is Marketplace, Quinn? So Marketplace is now the revived version of what student government used to operate. It's a classified page online where students and people from around Hyde Park can list their items, their sublets, to reach out to other people around Hyde Park. I don't know about you two, but my favorite entry on the Marketplace is listed under a friend, and it's a giant stuffed minion. So if that's something you'd be interested in purchasing, hit up marketplace.chicagomaroon.com. Oh, he looks nice. So, Miles, I hear there's been some developments in the case of ProMarket Managing Editor Sam Eiler Driscoll. That's right, Quinn. I actually got to speak with her this week. So, I'm here today with Sam Eiler Driscoll. Last we heard from you, or was in the immediate aftermath of the Bandit Invitation announcement, and when that happened, as I recall, you resigned from some of your responsibilities, but not all of them. Could you maybe remind us what? I, I stepped off an editorial board, but I, I withdrew from voting rights on the editorial board, essentially on grounds that without free speech, I wasn't able to properly debate issues like whether or not our center should be giving a platform to somebody like Bannon um, without fear of retaliation. And in recent, in, in about the last week or so, you had some meetings with Human Resources about that? So, uh, obviously all staff have six-month probationary period. Um, they tried to extend the probationary period because they said that they haven't been able to properly assess my fit for the role. Um, however, when I went to the meeting and they... And I said, but, you know, well, I'm still not going to work on Bannon things. And they said, fine. And I'm still not going to, like, vote on the editorial board. And they said, fine. And so I was like, well, you know, what's the issue? But I think what happened is after our negotiation, I'm not sure entirely why my boss, Luigi, established a new procedure whereby he needed to approve all content, I guess because they, maybe they were worried about me going rogue, maybe they wanted to like, I made a specific point during the negotiation of saying that it need, he needed to be the person who was clearly the editor-in-chief of ProMarket if he was, rather than trying to use other people as like puppets for his agenda, that was important to me. So I guess he thought in the spirit of the negotiations he should have final sign-off on all content but that turned out not to be workable because he's too busy and our site traffic was plummeting. So he rescinded that order. But that was not part of my, that wasn't part of my package. And so essentially that's the only main change to my job duties besides all of the other exclusions like not working on the band and things that they said still stand. And also in my negotiation, they granted my speech rights and they agreed that they would take up the issue of staff speech rights with the administration. Um, initially it was, the plan was, Luigi and I would go. Then when I approached Luigi about it, he said, oh, I've already done it. But staff, I mean, so effectively by saying, we want you to reverse the, the, the negotiation, they were rescinding my speech rights again. And so, I'm like, well, I'm not... Firstly, I'm not, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I never did anything wrong. They did everything. They're the people who started this, essentially. Like, I behaved absolutely professionally at every step of the way. And I don't accept any kind of accusation that I deserve this probation. You know, I've been doing my job essentially exactly the same way the whole time I've been here. And I... 
it, it like unless I mean unless they have grounds to show that I like am deserving of probationary treatment then that I don't understand why this is happening and so I told them like I don't accept the probation I want a secure contract and they said they're very busy they need to get back to me and I assume they are pretty busy right now so I I mean it, the fact is that the University of Chicago is raking in billions of dollars on grounds that it is the epitome of free expression and there's not free expression at UChicago. There is free expression for some people at UChicago and there is an, there's a logic to the people who get free expression here as well. You know, Luigi's ban and gambit managed to secure this university one of the biggest donations that it ever got. When you say that, which donation are you referring to? To the economics department. You know, specifically on grounds of its freedom of expression policy. The University of Chicago, like, I mean, you, I don't know if anybody else saw this report in Slate, that right-wing think tanks are being encouraged not to, do, to donate to any other universities because of the free speech policies that they're pursuing. And so it's, it's like, it's clear what's going on here, right? Like, they, Luigi got the university their, their giant donation. Ben is not even coming. So he doesn't even, I mean, Luigi's not interested in Ben and coming. From what I can tell. He doesn't talk to me. We obviously don't talk about this anymore. But Ben is not coming. But he didn't need to come for the, for the media spectacle to have its effect. And now they're trying to squeeze out the people who ever dared to say anything against it. I know we haven't really heard anything about the band invitation since it got announced that he had been invited. You don't think it's going to actually occur? No. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I think that my boss did not realize how great the danger would be that he would be seen as a Nazi sympathizer, particularly since Ben has gone to Europe and like said, like, let them call us racist, let them call us xenophobes, wear it as a badge of honor, you know. That wasn't really his plan. He definitely did the administration the favor that they needed. And I think his, his, he's in damage control mode right now. And, I mean, better for him if he doesn't actually have to debate the merits of white nationalism with Bannon. Because I don't really think that he... I'm not really sure that he ever meant to, you know, like, he's, but I mean, Luigi has no preparation, intellectual preparation for dealing with the issue of white nationalism. That is not what he works on. So, like, he's not the person to do, to have that fight if it was ever intended. And I think that the fact that they're, the way that they've handled the opposition shows that also that. They never actually, he never took seriously the, the premise that he's going to invite Ben in here and like give him a dressing down and show that neo-Nazism is not sustainable or not logical. It, that, was, that, that obviously was a pretext. So he wants it done and they want to, I mean, I'm not sure if they wanted to fire me or if they do want to fire me. I think that they just wanted to make clear that I couldn't, have that independent, like, be independent-minded in my work. I, th I think it was, like, a, an attempt to just get me under their thumb and make me scared a little bit. And, but I, I can't rule out the fact that they were planning to just use that three months to try to find somebody to fill my job, who they know will just do whatever they want. And so if, it's, if I'm just going to, like, essentially give back my speech rights and not know if I've got a job, it's not worth it. And so... That, that was what the calculation was on my side, so... You're making a connection, as I understand it, between Luigi inviting Steve Bannon and this large donation going to the econ department. Have you seen any evidence in your position that there was some kind of a you know, no. tacit agreement there? Or? No, I don't have access to those, that information. I'm, I'm, I'm basing that on the words of Ken Griffin, gotcha. specifically. Like, that's the one thing that he called attention to. Your original six-month probationary period, that's a standard yeah. contractual obligation. Yeah. The additional three months is sort of a punitive measure. 
they they didn't say you're being punished, but I am being punished because that's three more months of precarity and not. Yeah. And your position and, isn't, and isn't guaranteed fact, after those three months. No, I mean my position is not guaranteed at all ever. But it would be I would be entitled, for instance, to unemployment protections if they give me if they give me a a secure contract and then we're just like okay sorry bye. I would have more protections, and I just. I, 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 they're, they're toying with me. And also they added language to the like updated job description to essentially expand their managerial discretion. And I <laughs> told Pete this, that like the new sheet that they gave me said something about one of the metrics of my performance is my ability to adhere to Stigler Center values. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like there's no description of these things. So essentially they were giving themselves they were expanding their room for managerial discretion in a way that, to me, looked like they're trying to find some grounds to fire me. Like, they're trying to invent a way to find grounds to fire me, no matter how meticulously I do my job. So, I'm not going to play ball with these people like this. It's not cool. <laughs> like I, None of it's cool. <laughs> like The whole thing has been a disaster from my perspective. So, and very, very whole, personally exhausting. <laughs> Do you sympathize at all with other groups on campus who don't feel as if their right to expression is honored by the administration? So I'm thinking of the unionization yeah. efforts and things like that. Yeah, and I definitely would draw, I mean, from my perspective, unionization is a speech, right? And freedom of association is a speech, right? And I think that the logic of this free speech absolutism that's being propounded where there's clear exceptions like graduate students and staff and the sorts of people who are being covered under this elaborate the provost statement are not people who are coming here arguing for you know reparations there are there are people who are coming here essentially arguing for ideologies that serve big money, you know, and this, it, you know, it, it's, th that, there is ideological content to this freedom of, this fake freedom of expression policy. It doesn't apply equally. Certainly doesn't apply, I mean, certainly doesn't apply to like controversial left-wing terrorists, for instance. It would not, we would never have that conversation about an Islamist who comes here and is like preaching jihad in the United States. That doesn't, has that happened at Chicago? I don't know, maybe it's not. Since I've been here, it's certainly not happened. I mean, we got Cornell West. <laughs> so you mentioned that as part of your negotiation, Professor Zingales had agreed to work with you to talk to the administration about expanding free expression for employees of the university. And you seem to indicate that that hadn't gone anywhere. Well, so my, the negotiation, it, I, I asked if they would consider a one-off sort of blanket conscientious objection exclusion under this particular case, just because, not because I think that it should only be in this particular case, just because I was like, we gotta start the conversation somewhere. And not even for the whole university, just at Booth, because we have a separate dean and, you know, well, I mean, there's deans of all the colleges or whatever, but that's the place where I know that Luigi has influence. And I wanted to do this with him. And I, I mean, if it happened, he says it happened, because I asked him. And he said that they had the meeting. He said that the university is concerned about setting that precedent. And I was like, well, if the university freedom of expression policy is a fiat policy, which it is, it's not like grounded in the Constitution. None of the University of Chicago's freedom of expression policies have anything to do with the Constitution. And you can see that in various different ways. But it's guaranteed by fiat. And so they can, by fiat, also guarantee this conscientious objection exclusion during the Bannon order. And even if they even if it sets the precedent, they can reverse it because it's by fiat, you know? Like they're making this up as they go along and they have that power and they're couching it in constitutionalist language so that they can orient it inside these larger debates that are happening across the country but it's not I, the, 
there is nothing whatsoever in the Constitution that would indicate that a person's speech rights are dependent on having an invitation from a gatekeeper, for instance. And you'll, if you saw what Zimmer said in his panel thing the other day, Bannon is, has a right to speak if he's still invited. The Constitution doesn't contemplate someone's speech rights being dependent on an invitation. And if, that were, if, if, if this were a constitutional issue, then Jeff Stone would have violated also Richard Spencer's speech rights by denying his request for him to come and speak here. You know, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires there to be some sort of intellectual intermediary between a person and a platform. The, the, that's, that's the basic point in the first place, is the Constitution is not about platform. It's about speech rights. And nobody, not me, not any of the protesters here, is trying to keep Bannon from going and talking to a wall. They're trying to keep him from getting on a stage and being imbued with all of the intellectual capital that comes along with being at the University of Chicago. And that's the thing that we're objecting to. It doesn't, like, none of the things that Zimmer's saying make sense if you don't accept the distinction between speech and a platform. You know, like, you can't, I mean, Bannon is free to speak. Like, he's free to speak in this country no matter what. He doesn't have to be given the legitimacy of a platform by anyone. There's, you know, because if one person, if it is implied in the Constitution that the right to free, free, free speech implies a right to a platform, every single person needs to have the right to the same platforms. And that's clearly not possible. It's not workable. So, anyway, sorry. Um, just maybe to wrap up, I, I know in university in policies and language that rights of, as I understand it, students and faculty are fairly enumerated with respect to free speech. Is there any kind of enumeration that you know of of the rights to free expression for employees of the university other than, than faculty? And... No. Uh, after my negotiation, I saw that they issued a statement saying, staff has free speech, but any change to their job description has to be covered by or like negotiated with their employer which I mean I think it was just like a sort of like let's change the subject kind of thing because speech speech rights include speech acts and this is a very complex I mean it's like I, I don't know if it's been decided this case in the Supreme Court about the people who don't want to make the gay wedding cakes or whatever you know action is covered under speech and so this is that was sort of like a they were sort of like punting and with that statement at all um, because, for instance, they were like, as long as you're, they, they told me, as long as you're not engaging in, you know, if, as long as you're doing your job, you can protest, but I was in an open Twitter war with Luigi, right? Like, after this happened, and I say Twitter war, I was tweeting constantly at him and also about this. And if I tweet about this when I'm sitting at my desk, does that mean that I'm violating the terms of free expression? Like, I, like it was, there were clearly a whole lot of things, and there's tons of implications. And uh, this is obviously clear to other staff, because other staff have told me that they can't say anything because they're afraid. They've specifically said, I need this job. So, I mean, I need this job, but I was the person who happened to be the first one down the line, and so it was more immediate in my case. But, you know, so to say, oh, staff have freedom of expression, however, you can be fired if we see you as not being faithful to the values of the Stigler Center of Chicago Booth. Like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't think they, don't, they know what that means. It's something that they've invented. So there's the practical purposes. Staff do not have freedom of expression. So be careful. But you're not staff, are you? You're a student, I am, right? I am not staff. Okay. Thank you for uh, chatting with me. Thank you very much for listening. For all your great arts news on campus, be sure to check out the Maroons' other podcast, Help the Arts Cast. And coming out soon will be some more episodes of the Quadcast. This Friday, the Maroon is going to release its housing issue, where it covers what it's like to live in Hyde Park. As part of that issue, I created a podcast and an article about some graduate student housing options around campus. Well, Quinn, I read your piece on the Maroons website, and it talks about the type of housing that the university offers to graduate students. Um, so you can give us a little bit more about that? That's right, yeah. So basically what I covered is these apartment buildings called residential properties. 
And they're apartment buildings that look basically like any other apartment building around Hyde Park, except that the university owns and operates them. Um, they're available to graduate students and university staff. There used to be 48 of these buildings, and now there are only 13, and one of those 13 will be demolished, uh, will be evacuated in June and demolished soon after. Does it look like the university is planning on replacing these housing, un housing units for the graduate students? Or? So the university has not, when they've demolished or sold off these properties in the past, they haven't exactly created other housing options. Residents who are displaced by this can look to find another apartment in another residential property, but they often face a month-long wait list, which makes it difficult to plan for their future living arrangements. Sounds really interesting. Um, for all of the listeners, I encourage you to check out the long-form podcast piece that is up on the Maroon SoundCloud and iTunes page. Be sure to check out our special episode dropping later this week on the Boyer and Zimmer Free Speech event. Our very own Grace Houck sat down with student government organizer Chase Harrison, as well as several other students who asked questions at the event. So, Austin, what's going on on campus this week? Tuesday, April 10th at 10 a.m. in the IOP living room, Dr. Wolfgang A. Waldner, the ambassador of Austria, will be speaking at the IOP to discuss the future of the European Union. Sounds spicy. Yeah. On Wednesday, April 11th at the Quad Club, former UN ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad will discuss his time in the Bush administration, the relationship between the United States and Iraq, and the current state of global affairs. Thursday, April 12th at 5 p.m. at the New Barrow Collegium, Andrew Liu will give a talk entitled from the Canton trade to Comprador, which will undercut common understandings of Chinese capitalism through the lens of 20th century Cantonese merchants. Finally, this Thursday, April 12th at 6 p.m. in the Rockefeller Memorial Chapel, former White House senior advisor Valerie Jarrett will be having a conversation on her career in politics. All right, Austin, let's get technical. So the tech fact this week is kind of meta. It's about this podcast called Sheldon County. So this guy, James Ryan, who works with AI, and he creates procedurally generated fake American counties. And he has this podcast now called Sheldon County, where it's essentially supposed to be a podcast of all the happenings happening in this fictional county at any given time. Wait. So he creates fictional, like, counties out of data. Yeah, but he doesn't create it. The AI creates it. So this entire podcast is created by AI, and it's all voiced by, like, um, like a Cortana or Alexa-type voice. And it's supposed to go over all the daily haps in this m fake American county. Has uh, anything interesting happened in this county? Uh, well, you guys can check out the episodes for yourself, actually. They're on SoundCloud, on James Ryan's SoundCloud. Um, just look them up. They're really interesting. Um, episode one, entitled A Nothing Place, is essentially nothing happens. Um, and then season... Uh, episode Good pitch. <laughs> this is when... This is when Computer generation goes this, wrong. This is when we realize he's actually talking about our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Episode two gets pretty spicy, though, so you should check that one out. What are the odds that nothing happens? One in... A lot, probably. That is all we have for you guys this week. First off, I want to thank Professor Guy Emerson Mount for speaking with me. I want to thank Pete Grieve for chatting with me about our coverage of the events this week. Thank you to Olivia DeKaiser. Thanks to Sam Eiler Driscoll for coming back on the pod to talk to us. Thank you to Aaron Senden and Andrew Dietz for producing music for this podcast. And as always, thank you to Ben, Ken, and the entire Logan Cage staff. And... Catherine, Catherine McDonald for her unwavering support of this project. I'm Miles. I'm Austin. I'm Quinn. And we'll see you next Monday.